The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. About nine times out of ten when I preach, really no matter where I am, I prefer to do it down on the floor instead of in a pulpit. It's just a habit I got into. had a heart transplant nine years ago, and leading up to that, I didn't have a lot of energy and really couldn't do stairs of any kind, even if it was just a few, and I kind of got used to it, so I'm more comfortable. However, uh, this morning I was down here during Bible class, and it was a little uncomfortable for me there because I kept seeing this guy sneaking up behind me on either side. And I kept catching it, and I'd think, that's still, that's still the camera. That's all it is. But uh, anyway, when I moved up there, I kind of got that out of my mind. And hopefully I can adapt and adjust pretty well. I'm certainly glad to be here. I appreciate your hospitality throughout the day. The accommodations that were made over the hotel have been great. I was able to relax and kind of doze off a little bit this afternoon, which at home with my five children I don't get to do very often. So that was a treat. Um, I appreciated the fellowship meal. It was very good. Uh, matter of fact, I'm still pretty full myself. I don't know if I'll do anything except for maybe polish off some more of those Krispy Kreme donuts I bought on the way up. I joked with some people about it. I've still got a few. A few of that dozen left. Uh, may hit some of those. I don't know. But uh, I do appreciate the opportunity to be with you. It's been an enjoyable day, and I'm thankful that you're having these type of events. Anytime a congregation can come up with a little bit more of an excuse, if you can call it that, to invite some friends or family members or, you know, just something to say, we're having something special today. I think that's a wonderful thing. Back home, we try to do something quarterly, whether it's a gospel meeting or a guest speaker. We have a couple of singings a year. We try to do that just to make sure that we have an extra excuse, not that it should take that, but it sometimes does. It makes it a little bit easier if you can treat someone to something special. I don't know how special this has been, but at least you've made an effort to try to do something special today, and it wouldn't be on you if you had failed at that. It would be on me. Um, I almost didn't come, believe it or not, and I've been looking forward to this for three or four months, I guess, since James first reached out. But Friday morning, I woke up, and like every day, I had plenty to do, several places I needed to go. I jumped in the shower, jumped out. I was totally fine, got about half-dressed, reached down in the bottom drawer to pick up my hairbrush, and instead of getting half bent over, I got to about here. And I froze in some of the most excruciating pain I've ever had in my life. Uh, something hit me or stabbed me right there in the back, my hip, uh, my kidney. I didn't know what it was, but it was terrible. Uh, I kind of gathered myself hanging there on the counter. I didn't bend over. I didn't straighten out. Finally made my way, stumbled over, and positioned myself on the bed where I could stop hollering in my mind, at least. I wasn't screaming when my home wasn't doing any good. But... Uh, I, stopped, I calmed down a little bit and uh, finally got dressed, eventually managed to get dressed, finish what I had to do, which thankfully was one thing for that day that was really important. Got back home, still terrible pain, awful pain. Uh, called my mom and daddy because that's what you do when you're hurting and you're by yourself. And they said, well, it's probably your sciatic nerve. Never, I've heard of such, but never experienced it. That's probably what it was. Numbness down my leg, severe pain in my hip, and it was rough. Friday was rough. Saturday was rough. My wife was saying, you don't need to go. You don't need to go. You can't be in the car for four hours. Don't do that. I don't ever listen to her. And uh, gospel's more important. So I got in the car and made my way up here. Although I was planning to leave a lot earlier, I came a lot later last night than I intended. Slept well. Felt pretty good this morning. Got a little tinge right now. So I tell you that whole story because if I scream and double up, well, I don't know if I double over. That hurt too bad. But if I scream, don't call an ambulance, I'll be okay. Just spread me out on the floor for a few minutes, and I'll do some more of those stretches. It'll look weird, but it'll help. Uh, but I appreciate the opportunity, and, and I just want you to know that I tried to make an effort to be here, and I am here, and I'm thankful to God for that. It's certainly been a blessing. Go ahead and take your Bibles and open them with me, if you would, to the book of Genesis. When you get there, just simply go to Genesis chapter 3. So you'll only be a few pages into the Bible there in Genesis chapter 3. We spent the first hour this morning during Bible class all, of course, talking about obedience as the overall over, overlying theme for the day. And we talked this morning during Bible class, kind of springboarded out of Genesis chapter 1 to talk about some of the principles of foundational obedience. And I tried to show a few things that we could notice about obedience, the necessity of it, some of the characters that represented it well. 
Um, I probably intended to go to about four characters. We got through two, so Noah and Abraham, I thought that was sufficient. We stopped and kind of called it there. And then the very next hour, we talked a little bit more concerning obedience again, but this time from the New Testament, Acts chapters 4 and 5. We just had to hop around for time's sake, but in Acts chapter 4 and 5, uh, talked about really what obedience ought to look like, a prime example of obedience in a way, and what full obedience looks like. And then this evening, we're going to kind of close that out, sticking with the topic of obedience, obviously, but in one way, making what James would call the antithesis of that. I guess you've heard that word a few times in the last couple of years. Uh, I don't use that word often. For me, I'm, I'm a little more country than even he is. The antithesis means the back opposite. That's really what that means. And so instead of talking specifically about obedience, we're going to really be looking at disobedience for the first time. And talking about what happens or what occurs, what takes place when one or a group of people, there's two in this account, the idea of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, what happens and the problems or the failures that come with disobedience. And so this is turning that coin over, looking at the other side, but I think it's very appropriate. Because if I were to ask you the question, and you, can, you don't even have to show your hands because I know the answer, but if I ask you the question, how many of us in this room have ever sinned, I already know the answer. We've all sinned. According to the Bible, according to Scripture anyway, Romans 6 and verse or 3 and verse 23, I should say, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so according to what John tells us in his later epistles, like 1 John, for example, he tells us if we say that we have no sin, the truth is God is not in us, and we make God a liar. And in, sense, in a sense, as well, we lie to ourselves if we claim or try to claim or show that we have no sin. So we're guilty of sin. No doubt we've had sin in our past. Uh, Lord willing, we're not having sin right at the moment in the present, but we'll have it potentially in our future as well. But we're going to do our best to keep from making that a habit to keep from making that our lifestyle or our standard, such as in Romans chapter 6. We've got to make a choice constantly, Romans 6 and verse 16, to choose whether we want to choose obedience unto righteousness or sin that is unto death. And so we do make that choice. And in this account of Genesis chapter 3, these two main characters, they would be the only two main characters because they're the only two people on earth at the time, I suppose, uh, they ended up being disobedient to God. And apparently, according to what we're going to read, at some point, God had sat down. I say sat because that's just the colloquialism. But God had spent the time or took the time to give them that instruction that Eve mentions he did, which was to not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And we call that today the forbidden fruit. Now, whatever that is, I, I couldn't tell you. I've had people just not too long ago that spoke up in Bible class and Wanted to make a good comment, but he said, you know, when Adam ate that apple, well, we have no idea about that. Highly unlikely that would have been it, but nonetheless, it was a sin toward God. And so in this account, we're going to read through parts of it. Remember, I told you this morning, I'm dyslexic, so when I make mistakes and stumble, it's on your part if you fail to read along. Uh, but we're going to read through this account. We're going to see uh, several things that happen, many things that happen, as a matter of fact, as a result of their disobedience. What are the issues, what are the problems that come with failed obedience, okay? So we're in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 1. Here's what it says. And now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God hath made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, For we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit that which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, now she tells us he said, we don't have that record, but we know that's true. For God hath said that ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. For God know that in the day that ye eat thereof, that then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good from evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, verse 6, and saw that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree of fruit to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband, and he did eat. And the eyes of, both, of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. 
And they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden, in the, in the, walking in the cool of the day, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Verse 9, And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard a voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee? Now you can underline in my Bible, even though this is a pretty much brand new copy. I preached out of it three times, so I'm actually struggling to find my place in some cases. But even though it's new to me, I have actually highlighted slash underlined and boxed that in. That means for me, that's a very important term or, or word that needs to be noticed. He said, Hast thou eaten, verse 11, of the tree, which I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman who thou gavest to me to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is it thou that thou hast done? And the woman said to the serpent, Beguiled me, and I did eat. Verse 14, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, uh, thou, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and every beast of the field, and upon thy belly thou shalt go, and the dust thou shalt eat all the days of thy life. Verse 15. And I will put enmity between thee and woman, between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And then the woman said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow in thy conception, and in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. And the desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And Adam, verse 17, he said, Because thou hast, hast hearkened, uh, because thou hast hearkened unto, unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Curses is the ground for thy sake, for in sorrow thou shalt eat all the days of thy life. And of course, it goes on to expand and explain that a little bit more. And eventually, in verse 21, finally, God places clothes upon them that he made out of animal skins. So I want to think about and again go through the possibilities of the things that occur because of the very first one here, and that is their sin. According to what we read there in verse 6, it says there very clearly that the woman saw this tree. She determined she was going to eat it. In verse 7 it says, And the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. You see, in this first case, we understand that God apparently has given an instruction. She said that was the case. Adam says that was the case. Later, God even says that to be the case that he had instructed them not to eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. We would consider that later, kind of in hindsight, and assume that may have very well been the tree of life, as we often describe it, as the letter to Revelation describes it as well. And so we have these two individuals that get involved in something that I suppose in their minds, at least in the first instance of such, may have not really affected them very often. Maybe not very much. Maybe that when Eve partook of this for the first time and somehow enticed him and offered it to her husband to partake of, maybe in their minds they thought, like Satan had tried to convince them, this was really no big deal. But you see, by them going against the commandment of God, and we know it was a commandment, it's listed there in verse 11 as being commandment, it's also listed later as a commandment of God, what I have commanded you, what they were doing very first and in the basis of things was where they were committing sin. You say, well, how in the world could something so simple, something so basic, something seems so trivial in the eyes of God be a sin? Well, it really comes down to the way God views sin. And there are many passages that we could go to and think about and consider that would prove or in one way define or describe what sin is. But in this case, I think the perfect text for that would be 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. You see, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, and you can turn there or not, we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit. But in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, God explicitly explains to us that sin itself is a transgression of the law. As a matter of fact, we'll just read the whole thing. For whosoever committed sin transgresseth the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. 
Now, the word transgression, I realize, you, you know it because you're Bible students and you, you sat in many a Bible class or studied on your own. I know you have many times and you've come to know what it means. But basically, the word transgression means to either go against or to go around. And that's really a good way of, of putting it because transgression is very close kin to an English word we use for trespass. You see, the idea and the root is the same. Someone has a property, they've got a fence that's been established, at least a line that's been marked, and, and according to their property lines and the rights that they have to it, they may forbid or prohibit anyone from traveling inside of their property without explicit permission. And basically what God has done here is He's laying boundaries. He has laying out property lines, if you will, to them and said, you can have all of this that is mine. You're welcome to every tree that you find, every fruit that you encounter. You're more than welcome to that. But he has put a boundary line, a fence, if you will, around this tree that is in the midst, the middle of the garden. They are crossed that line. Now, how they got to that, whether or not, and I, I'm just using this for illustration, whether or not they physically had to just kind of headlong run in there and dive in, and I don't know if what Eve had to shimmy up the tree to get there or whatever, or if maybe there was an overlying limb. Maybe the tree was in the midst and there was a limb that just kind of hung way out further than all the rest, and it, it seemed so easy just to grab that last piece of fruit right on the edge. Even though it seemed trivial, maybe even to us, would seem trivial at the time. It was a sin, S-I-N, sin, because it was to transgress, to go against the law of God. And that's where this starts. In considering the idea, if you will, the problems with failed obedience, problem number one is failing to obey is to commit sin every time. Now, I realize that's not the favorite word. I've got, I've got uh, I, I, I really don't know how to find them as much anymore. I've had friends, maybe I'll just say that. I've had friends in the past who were gospel preachers that as of late, uh, they don't want to say a whole lot about sin. They've kind of got that TV evangelist approach where they say, well, if you talk about sin and disobedience and, and all these uh, sinful things and you tend to run people off and they get frustrated and they just don't want to do anyway. So I try to steer clear. One of my friends said, I just try to steer clear of the term. We don't talk about sin. We don't talk about hell. We try to encourage. Folks, I want to encourage everybody I'm around. And if I can encourage them to get to heaven because they do not transgress the law of God, I'm happy with that. Somebody says, well, you talk about sin, you talk about hell, you know, you'll scare people. I would rather scare someone into heaven any day than lull them into hell. Period. And so the first thing that we find as a result, that is always a result of disobedience, is that of sin. But you see, for Adam and Eve, it didn't stop there. You see, sin carried them down a pathway, which was really a path on the way down, which was really carrying them to the bottomless pit of what sin can do to us, and it carried them farther than that. Because according to what we're reading here, and you can look at it again in verse 7, it says, And the eyes of both of them were open, for they knew that they were naked. Now, I'm trying to read naked. I, I actually would say naked most of the time, but I'm trying to be more studious with it. But they were naked. They were stark, blooming, completely naked. Now, is that the way that God created them? Well, the immediate suggestion of that would be, well, yes, of course, God created them naked. That was the state that they were in. They were in the purest state that God would have them for. And God, even as, even as you have to admit that God did not even until verse 21 of this record, this account, even make clothing for them. I generally encourage members... Elders particularly, then any time a man stands up and, and is preaching or teaching, if he says something that does not align with the Bible, immediately stop his mouth, cut him off, and don't listen, don't let anybody hear it. That's the best approach. But I do want you to listen to this and listen for just a moment. It's only a suggestion. I don't think they were naked. You say, well, I'm preaching the scripture says it right there. They knew that they were naked. 
I don't think they were naked in one sense of the word. Let me take you to a couple of passages. These are not parallels, but they do give some explanation. The first place I want you to go with me is the book of Psalm. So if you want to find Psalm, and I like to help people do it like I have to, take your Bible, pretty much split it in half, and right there about the middle of it, you'll find Psalm. So go to Psalm chapter 104, and look at what it said here in verses 1 and 2. Now Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2, admittingly, is speaking about God himself, okay? He's speaking about God or the Godhead, so I suppose from one sense this talks about God the Father, this talks about God the Spirit or the Holy Spirit, this talks about God the Word, which is Jesus. But here's what it said in Psalm 104, verse 1 and 2. Watch this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, for thou art very great. Watch these terms now. Thou art clothed, clothed with honor and majesty who coverest thyself with light as a garment, who stretched out the heavens like a curtain. So what does the psalmist believe about God in the clothing, if you will, that he wears? The garments. Well, he says you are clothed, God is, with honor and majesty. He says that you are covered, quote from verse 2, with light as a garment. Now that's God. In whom's image did Jesus and God and the Spirit of Genesis chapter 1, in whom's image were these two individuals made? In the very image of God. So now, with my disclaimer, I'm not claiming whether or not they had on clothing like I wear, like you wear, and I thank you for choosing to do that today, by the way. I'm telling you that they weren't naked from the sense that they had been clothed in the garments of light and majesty and honor that God had put on them. And so what's actually happening here in the context seemingly then is that at some point leading up to this, I suppose as they were mentioned as being created there along about the last couple of verses of chapter 1, their creation itself was expounded upon and kind of reviewed in chapter 2 of Genesis. When you get to Genesis chapter 3, they notice that they are naked because they lose from them the glory and majesty of God at the point of their sin. Now that may muddy the waters. And I do realize that just because the water the water's muddy doesn't mean it's deep. But that's one perspective. Adam and Eve lost their glory and honor and majesty in the eyes of God, and then they realized without the covering of God, they in a sense were now bare and naked to the world and to one another. So you see what happens here? Watch this pattern as it begins to develop. Because of their disobedience, they sinned. And sin led them to shame. Now, I'll give you a tip. Every one of these words will begin with the letter S, so you'll be able to follow them if you choose. Sin led to shame. Now, that can be a good quality. We understand and know, for example, that there are many things that exist in our life, in our time, in our day right now that ought to bring people to shame that simply do not. Matter of fact, I've, I've done a few Google searches on this in the past because I've had people ask, strangely enough, ask about these things. You know, uh, what about dreams and uh, visions and all that such? And I have come to learn that one of the main dreams that anyone has, and I'm not saying this is significant of anything, but one of the major dreadful nightmares that anyone ever has is that they go into some place, whether it's school or the workplace or what, I've been to church this way in a dream, completely naked. And I said, that's dreadful to think about. That's shameful to think about. And Adam and, he, Adam and Eve here knew that they were naked. You know, Ezekiel, it's, it's at least recorded of Ezekiel that in, in, I'm sorry, not Ezekiel, Ezra, in Ezra chapter 9 and verse 6, Ezra would to God and beg that even the children of Israel be ashamed of their sin. We live in a society, you know as well as I do, where too many times people are no longer ashamed. They're not ashamed. 
Like you've probably heard it explained before, they're now wearing their inner garments to be outer garments. They're living lifestyles that bear themselves naked to the world, whether it be physically or, or in just the spirit of the way they live. You and I could be guilty of such. But we have to be cautious. We have to be careful that we never end up like they did in Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 15, who lost their ability to blush and to be ashamed. So I'm telling you, their shame here in one sense was a good quality. Their shame in one sense indicates to me ultimately the way their attitude would turn eventually. It brings them eventually to a good place. Now Paul told the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3 verses 18 and 19 that we need to be cautious that we do not glory in our shame. The context and the idea of that in Philippians 3, 18 and 19 is basically that not that we are living a sinful, shameful life, but we're looking at those who are and we're basically making a joke out of it. You say, well, that wouldn't happen in our society. <laughs> it's happened in my own living room. I've turned on the television or gone to a movie or whatever and pulled up something on, you know, in front of the whole world to watch, including myself, and sat there and laughed. And, oh, that was funny and shameful. We cannot be guilty of glorying in our shame. And that's maybe what has gotten backwards to an extent about the world in which we live. Is that they, many times, people, individuals glory in their shame. The things that ought to be shameful, they find glorious and, and fun and right. Sin led to shame. But not only that, in these trailing of the down process here, their disobedience went from sin, it went to shame, and then it went, in this case, I would call it sham. Again, reading in verse 7, again, it says, And the eyes of both of them were opened, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves aprons. Now, I'm calling the sewing of these fig leaves together, I'm calling that a sham. Because when they understood, when they knew, when their hearts were opened, and, and Satan, in a sense, he didn't lie. You know, Eve says, well, if we eat of that, we'll surely die. Satan tries to play that off. Satan says, oh, no, 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 you won't die. What will happen to you, verse 5, is you'll eat of that, and you'll know good from evil. That's actually what happened. He, in that case, he really didn't lie. That wasn't all of the problem. It wasn't the only issue, but it was one. And what Adam and Eve did is they began to take fig leaves and sew them together and try to make for themselves a covering that would not stand. Now, how does that illustrate? Anytime a person is living in sin and they try to do anything in life to try to cover that sin, save allowing the blood of Jesus to do so, that is a sham. It's a scam. And it won't do what it's intended to do. You know, there are many people in life who, for example, uh, they can sometimes seemingly clothe themselves, make fig leaves, sew fig leaves together out of the material things in life. You ever known anybody because of what they have, and I mean by that, by material, the assets, the bank accounts, the big houses, the pretty dogs, the fast cars, people look at them in the community, and even though they may be extremely immoral people in some cases, some cases, people look to them with respect. People look at them and say, well, I don't know what it is, you know, that they've got going on, but it seems to be working well for them, so maybe I'll do what they do. Friends, what we're seeing is a sham. What we're seeing is someone who is not being clothed in the light of righteousness, in the glory and majesty of God. They're actually naked, but they've covered themselves in those things. People do that. People have clothed themselves in education sometimes. You ever known of anyone that is respected in the area because they've got several letters out beside their name, front or back? And no matter how they actually live life, people say, well, that's Dr. So-and-so, or that's Professor So-and-so, or that's, you know, he's got the MD, PhD, HDXD out behind his name, and so I'll give him and show him some respect. When in essence, that could all be fig leaves just sewn together. 
I've seen people, and to be honest about it, I've seen people clothe themselves in the fig leaves of religion. And I mean by that, and I'm not talking about the world religions, I'm not talking about the dominations even in a sense, although that happens often. I'm talking about the religions of God, of, the, of Christ and His church. Who like any of us could easily pass inside of these four walls and hold seats in these pews and be living in, in sin of some sort. Maybe it's a secret type sin that, that's not known to anyone else around us, but in essence we've sewn fig leaves together to try to cover that. And it just won't work. Adam and Eve are guilty of such. What about good deeds, morality, benevolence? All those things would be the same. We see people for what they look like oftentimes for not who they really are. So what is our duty? Our duty is that when we make a discovery that we've sinned, and then we in turn get ready or prepare ourselves to sham the thing by covering it up. Just don't do that. Just skip from step one all the way to the end. Take hold of Jesus and His blood through obedience and allow Him to reclothe us, to, to dress us back up in His glory and honor and majesty. That's the solution. So sin led to shame. Shame led to sham. Look at the next part here. Sham, in my mind, just the way I read this, also led to separation. Keep up the reading. We're in verse uh, 7. I'll read it again and keep going. And the eyes of both of them were open, and that they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife, now go ahead and highlight this, mark it, whatever, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. You see what happens? It ends up in verse 9 with the Lord God called unto Adam and said, Where art thou? Adam and Eve, who had just sinned, who felt the shame of that sin, a positive quality in a sense, covered that sin with the fig leaves of their own solution and righteousness in that sham, and then they were then separated from God. Is that even possible? In Isaiah 59 and verse 2, the scriptures clearly state to us in, in plain words, sin is a separation of God. Meaning by that, that God is righteous and the unrighteous have no relationship fully, truly with Him. Separated from God. Now, if you bear this out, what it seems to be and what it turns out to be, not here in this context immediately, but by the time this bears itself out, these two individuals, Adam and Eve, or verse 22 and following through 24, they're cast out of the garden. So because they hide themselves, because they try to cover themselves and hide themselves in the garden to the point they thought they maybe had gotten out of the view of God, God ultimately sends them out of the garden separates them from this tree in the midst of the garden, perhaps, possibly the tree of life. I, I couldn't be dogmatic or sure. But separates them from such. And they come down on the losing end of this. Because in every single case, and you can bear this out, when one is in the midst of their sins, sin will drive a wedge between them and God. Now, I can't speak from your experience, but I can speak from mine. In the last 22 years, the times when I've gotten to that place where I get frustrated and down and out or whatever, and I've done this. I, I, get, I get phone calls and emails and texts generally every week. I had four congregations I could have preached at today, but I committed this one long ago, so now I stand here. But I've, on a handful of occasions, I've gotten, I've gotten phone calls during the week. Can you preach here? Can you preach? No, I just ain't up to it. I can't, yeah, all kind of excuses. What's really wrong? I can recognize sin in my life. And I can feel the separation between me and God. And I just don't want to try to fake that fellowship. It's not a good place to be. That's where they were. But there's good news. We've spoken more negatively thus far because the context saw fit for us to do so. Yes, they sinned. Yes, they felt shame. Yes, they became a part of a sham. Yes, they were separated from God. But the good news is, 
that at that point, not on their own on their own part, but on the part of God and His love and compassion and concern for them, in spite of their sin, they have opportunity now to draw closer to Him than perhaps before. Let's keep up the reading there. We read through about verse, well, we're going to read into verse 9. They hid themselves, verse 8. They're in the presence, they're amongst, out of the presence of God and amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God said unto Adam, called unto Adam and said, Where art thou? Now look at Adam's uh, way of describing this, explaining this. And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So underline this, I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? The man said to the woman, said, The woman who thou gavest me she, to be with me, she gave me this, and, and I did eat. What's happening? What is happening right here in the context, and this is important, and I'm thankful that it happened. God began to seek them. You see, they made their own choice. They, they discovered that they didn't have a way out, and their choice was to run from God, to run from His presence, to hide themselves in these trees. But thanks be to God that He saw fit to come looking for them. And you know that stands true today? Today in our lives and in all of our lives, if we have to be completely honest, I like to describe it sometimes as boil it all down, pass it through a colander, put it over a funnel and put it in the jar. The truth is that you and I are here today as children of God's who stand in good standing with Him because of our obedience and faith which are tied together very tightly because God sought us. You say, well, I was looking for God. You may have very well been looking for God. But he was looking first. Back several years ago, my, my son was much younger. He's 16 now, so I would guess this is 10 years ago. He's about five or six years old. We were in Philadelphia, Mississippi. I was preaching over there at that time, and, or had gone back for a gospel meeting, actually. But we were over there with some of our friends. They got a little over a 100-acre farm, had cows and, and different things on it. And they had had a calf, they thought, had been born that morning, but they, they couldn't find it. So we'd been staying with them, and me and my son Cameron and the man who owned the farm, Scott, we walked out to look for that calf. And we walked the fence lines. We did the traditional stuff that you do. And, and at some point, Cameron just got bored with that. He's, he's little. And he said, Daddy, can I go back to the house? I said, well, yeah. I mean, we're way off the back of the farm, through the woods and over the river, and, you know, headed to Grandma's house, I guess. And I said, yeah, go ahead. Well, so he took off. Well, he didn't get very far. It'd probably been two or three minutes past, and I heard Cameron just screaming, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. He was lost. You know what I did? I walked straight to him because I'd been seeking him the whole time, and he didn't know it. Scott and I had been walking that tree line, staying just out of his sight the whole time, trying to let him be a big boy. That's only an illustration of some of the things that God does for us. He will let us walk away. He will let us be away. He will let us hide. He will let us try to, to block ourselves and, and bury ourselves from Him. But the whole time, God is standing back and He's seeking us far before we would ever seek Him. That's what's happening. And I'm thankful to God that of all the verses, and this is not the greatest of the context as of yet, but I'm so thankful that God said, Where art thou? And I'm so thankful that in one sense, as we study these pages together, whether it be here or anywhere else throughout the Bible, that through His scheme of redemption, God continues until today, whatever today is, the 30th of October, 2022, and He's still seeking out us all. And He's still asking us to answer the question for ourselves and before Him, because He already knows, where art thou? Seeking is what God did. But look at the next case. 
not only seeking, but the beautiful thing is, and this is what happened with Adam and Eve. Now, what we realize is they ultimately get put out of the garden and separated from God and, and such to a point, at least from the garden itself, from God. But not before they begin to search themselves. You see, seeking leads to searching. As, as far down as it's gone, from sin to shame to sham, now we're on the, on the road to seeking and to searching. Look at what he asked him. Where art thou? We've already read across it. And he, he asked him, verse 11, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I have commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Now, I'm going to put a line right here, and I'm going to give you my answer. If I had been there, I guess. <laughs> no. God, do you, do you really do you, do you think I would have done that? God, seriously, you created me. I mean, I, I've even been told that I was created in your own image. You really think I would go that far, God? No, well, no. that's not what Adam did. Strangely enough, as disobedient and sinful as they were in the moment and all that they had attempted so far, that's not what they did. Because reading only verse 12 and 13, and then again, and we'll see in a moment, and the man said, the woman whom thou gavest me, who thou gavest to be with me, she gave me the tree and I did eat. Now, I get it that in the midst of this, Adam is still and she's still pointing fingers. I mean, isn't that the way it goes too many times? My children do it. My youngest one, Ella, we've been, this has been the whole week this week. I don't know why. Doesn't matter what has happened around my house. Guess who did it? Ella. Her two sisters? Ella did it. Why would Ella do that? I can remember when I was a kid, my mama came to me, and boy, she had the, she had the belt in her hand. She was ready to roll. It was, it was showtime. And she come up, and she said, Who wrote on the inside of our closet door? And I said, Sherry did. That was my younger sister. She was two years younger. I was four. She was two. I said, Sherry did it. She said, oh, really? I said, yes, yes, ma'am. Sherry did that. I didn't do that. I promised, Mama, I didn't do it. She swung the door open. The entire alphabet was written on that door. Now, she's two. There wasn't no more talk. We point fingers. Adam said, well, it's, it's the woman that you gave me, God. So in part, it's her fault, but it also could be some of yours. She says, oh, no, no, don't blame me. It's that serpent, God. You let that serpent get in the garden, and he talked me into this. She's not lying. He did. But is that the root of the problem? See, what I appreciate about this account and the way that it's written, of course, by inspiration is, in verse 12, even though he, his finger is pointing in one direction, he ends it by saying, I did eat. The woman, when questioned, said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. You know what that is? That's confession. You know, no matter the reasoning behind it, no matter the excuse, they both said, I did eat. I've got the card to prove it, God, I ate it. I have to level with you, I ate it. And that's a good confession. And too many times in my life, and, and I've seen this happen publicly, you know, as a tradition goes at least, sometimes we use the invitation at the end of a service for those who want to come to God for the first time, be baptized and such. And we also use it for those who are struggling, who need help and prayers. And then we use it in another way oftentimes, and it's, it's expedient to do so, but to have someone to come forward. And they say, like one did this morning before service. I, didn't, I don't even know who it was because I didn't know the name. But, you know, I've sinned. I hadn't been attending the service. Or whatever it is, they'll say, I've sinned. Please forgive me. And they ask God and they repent and the brethren forgive them and encourage them. That's wonderful and great. But I've too many times in my life and too many times seen it and witnessed it as a gospel preacher. Someone will come down to that pew. And again, you don't have to do that. That's just an expedient way. But they'll come down and say, you know, I don't know, but maybe, maybe if, I, if I accidentally sort of kind of possibly sinned, I won't forgive it. No. Just say I've sinned. Just own up like Adam and Eve. They're in the worst case scenario possible. They're looking in the face, not literally, but in the face and the breath and the presence of God, and they finally just have to say, look, I did it. Why? Because they searched their hearts. I am so thankful to God that they set the example of one who would search their hearts heart would I do the same 
And I drove 225 miles to Cookville, Tennessee, not because I enjoy being out of town, enjoy being gone, not for the fellowship meal. It was, it was great, but it wouldn't have brought me up here. I came up here because there seemed to be an opportunity to preach the Word of God to people who are just like I am who need it and who sometimes need reminders to search their hearts. And I'm begging you to do that today. Because here's the rest of the story. Yes, sin led to shame. Yes, shame led to sham. Yes, sham led to separation. Yes, separation led to seeking. Yes, seeking led to searching. But I'm going to tell you what searching did. It led to a Savior. Look at the last few verses of the context we're discussing. He says, I did eat, or she does, I did eat, verse 13, verse 14, and God said in the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field, and upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Verse 15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thee and her seed, and I will bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. What is this? I've heard someone say, well, uh, Genesis 3, 14 and 15 are the very first prophecy ever recorded in the Scripture because this is a veiled reference, and it is a veiled reference to that of the Christ that would come. And how that Christ, when he would come, and he was hanging there on that cross, that even though the devil, in one sense, definitely brought pain, brought anguish, brought agony upon him, injured him, he was beaten, he was bruised, he was cut, he was scarred, he was bleeding. In one sense, all Satan accomplished with that was as much as just bruising his heel. You ever had a stone bruise? I've had them. They hurt bad. But I hadn't met a man yet that died from it. What about a head injury? See, the picture is that Jesus takes his foot at some place and he drops his foot upon the head of this serpent and he kills him. He defeats him. He disarms him. And that's what's here. Somebody says, well, that's the first prophecy of the Bible. Again, it is. But I would encourage you to know this. It's also the very first gospel sermon. And it contains three basic points. Number one, it says, or it claims to be that of a battle. He tells us in verse 13 that, that Satan himself is, is in a battle with God. Satan himself is the one that now has to crawl upon the ground all of his life and eat the dust thereof. God's fighting a battle. The war has begun right here, Genesis 3 and verse 14. God in verse 15 looks ahead all the way to the coming of Christ all the way past the first coming of Christ, even to the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Christ, and then all the way to the second coming of Christ. When Satan will be completely put down. There's a battle. There's a birth. And because of that birth being Jesus, there is a bruise to a head that ultimately will become a fatality. That's where we stand. Oh, how precious it is that God would even promise and did send a Savior for you and I. That makes me happy. We sing a song sometimes in our hymnals. We didn't do it today. I'm not, I, I didn't even think about it until now, but we sing that song about obedience. Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Are you happy tonight? Are you, are you happy? Are you thrilled? Are you overjoyed to be a child of God's? If you're not a Christian, then there's really no joy to be had as of yet. Thanks be to God that you have an opportunity tonight, as long as eternity should stand, uh, prayerfully it would for just another moment or two, that you could search your heart and determine, where am I in life? More than that, where will I be in eternity? In the state in which I am that you could realize and be thankful for the fact that God has sought you out and that he sent a Savior not to die for me, 
and not for you and not for people of the past and not for people in potential or the present, but all together, some of everybody who died for every man, not just who had ever lived, but ever would. That's the kind of Savior we have. And thanks be to God, the record tells us, Romans 5 and verse 8, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. A few ladies, a story is told at least. You can close your Bibles now if you'd like. But there's a story is told of a few ladies that were standing back in a church for you, I suppose, looked a little bit like this. And they just got in a discussion one day of how wonderful God was and, and the works that they're able and blessed to do because they're children of God's. And one of the ladies stood up, or not stood up, but, you know, stepped forward with her voice and said, hey, you know what, if I, if I could only be the hands of Jesus, you know, I could do so much work. I, 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 that's all I want to be. I want to be the hands of Jesus to do work. You know, I can, I can cook or I can do. And she named off a lot of things that she had done or was willing to do it the effort she was willing to put forth. And, of course, everybody in the group said, you know what, I, I feel you on that. I really understand that. That's, that's kind of where I stand. I, I'd like to be the hands of Jesus. Somebody else said, well, I, I'd like to be the mouth of Jesus, you know. If I could just go to my neighbor and sit down with them across the kitchen table and, and teach them the truth of God and have them to obey it and have their hearts to be pricked and for them to be converted and, and because of that be baptized, then, you know, just let God to save them. I want to be the mouth of God. Supposedly a couple of the other ladies came up with different ideas. If I could only be the eyes of Jesus and see all the wonders that he's seen. And they kept coming back and forth. And finally one lady said, you know what? All I ever want to be in life is a foot. I want to be the foot of Jesus. And they were like, what? Oh, I get it. Because you want to walk the paths that he walked. She said, no, no, no. She said, I want to stand beside him with my foot raised as high as I can get it. And I want to be there with him in unison stomping out the head of Satan when the opportunity comes. I'd like to be there too. If you're here this evening, the invitation is open to you through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism you put on Christ. You come from the plan or from the, from the lifestyle of disobedience into obedience. You, you don't suffer the things that these individuals had to suffer. But more than likely, I know we're, we're here, we're on a Sunday evening, it's, it's late, the preachers went over by five minutes, and I'm already frustrated at that, but I would go over for three more hours if I thought it would change anybody's mind. Because there are often times in my life when I've sinned, and the way I try to cover it is nothing more than a sham. and I run and separate myself from God. Tonight is the night to cease all of that. We'll sing an invitation song together to be encouraged while together we stand and as we sing.